Uh, good morning again, Waypoint uh, friends and brothers and sisters. The scripture before us this morning is uh, not something that I would ordinarily choose, especially for the Sunday before Thanksgiving or this, uh, or Sunday that is in some ways the beginning of a season of holidays, which is kind of where we're at, Thanksgiving, Advent, Christmas, New Year's, Super Bowl Sunday, maybe the end of that streak. The scriptures uh, before us this morning may be of little interest to most of us during any season uh, of, the, of the year, though, during this season or during any season, but sometimes uh, that's what you get when you go through the Bible uh, sort of in a regular and systematic or intentional direct way, not picking and choosing what you want to read, uh, but just taking each chapter and each passage and each verse as they come one after another. Over the years, I've tried to preach through uh, books of the Bible now and again, not always, but regularly, so that we are in that rhythm of studying the scriptures, not picking and choosing always what we want to hear, what we want to see, what we want to listen to, but taking uh, what's there and diving deep into it. Uh, currently, most of you know, we're studying through Jesus' best-known sermon, his uh, biggest and best-known collection of teachings known as the Sermon on the Mount. In chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel, we've been going through this chapter by chapter, verse by verse, passage by passage. We continue to do that this morning, and in that roll of the dice, surprise, this is what we get. This morning, we come to a passage, just three verses, three little verses in which Jesus talks about fasting. And I'm aware that we're beginning this season in our culture of feasting and how little these two things go together, how out of step Jesus' teaching is about fasting. But honestly, that's nothing new for Jesus because Jesus is out of step with the world on almost everything, or rather the world is out of step with Jesus on almost everything, all of the time across the board. And that's why we do, would do well, though, to pay attention to teacher Jesus because what he says is so different than what the world says, so much better, so much richer, so much deeper, so much truer, so much exactly what we need to hear even if we don't always want to. Teacher Jesus as son of God, as Messiah, as anointed one, as king of kings, has access to spiritual knowledge that we simply don't have. He has access to spiritual knowledge that we simply don't have and that we have no way to attain and we're not inclined to on our own. So we would do well to listen to him even when he's talking about out there things like fasting, which he is this morning. And fasting is out there. Fasting really itself is out there. Very few people fast today. Very few people in our culture fast on a regular basis as Jesus' followers did. Very few people in the church today fast. Very few people, very few Christians want to fast. It's not a part of who we are. We're gonna talk a little bit more of that, dig a little deeper uh, in just a few moments. First, let's pray again. God, help us to wanna hear, help us to be available to you. Help us to quiet and silence uh, the distractions, our own wants, our own desires and longings so that we might be as fully attentive to you as we might possibly be. Help us in that regard. Give us eyes that are longing to see and that can see. Give us ears that are receptive to what you would say. Give us hearts that are also open to the planting of your seeds that you might grow in us and through us and for your glory, things that bring you joy and bring us joy as well. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be immediately and forever forgotten. 
We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been with us for uh, any or all or most of the last 12 weeks or so, hopefully you've gotten a good sense of where we are in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In chapter four of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus begins his public ministry by announcing the kingdom of the heavens or the kingdom of God is near or available or accessible. Checking to see if we're picking up on things here over the weeks. And therefore, those who are beginning to follow him would have this new access to this thing that Jesus called the kingdom of God or the reign of God or the rule of God or the dominion of God, God's presence now with you and available to you in a new and different and profoundly rich way. Jesus uh, announces this and he calls people along with that to say that because this new thing has come, because the kingdom has come and the king, it's time to repent, to change our minds, change our ways, change our lives, to think differently, to reconsider to change, to go a different direction, to think differently, not just about sin, but about sin, but about everything. Jesus calls them to do that. And then in the spirit of the grace of God, Jesus announced blessings. You remember this, the blessed statements. He announces blessings on all sorts of different kinds of people. In the spirit of God's grace, you're blessed. You may not have thought you were blessed. You may not have thought they were blessed. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, because the kingdom of heaven, because the king is near. And then Jesus said to those who would apprentice with him, who would follow him, learn from him, and live in his way, that they would be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, you remember, and that that would be so because he would introduce them to a better way, a righteousness that surpassed that of the most religious people of their day, who were esteemed in so many ways for their religion and for their good, at least outward acts. And Jesus says, I'm introducing you to a new and better way of goodness and truth and reality and being. A good life from the inside out, we might call it. How to be truly good. And to that end, Jesus invited people to drill down in the common and popular teachings that they had heard in their culture and in their religion and in their faith from the Old Testament, from the traditions of their people over the centuries, uh, teachings that had been hollowed out, that had been made to fit their liking, that had been twisted and manipulated so that they fit with what people could actually do and accomplish or wanted to do and accomplish so that they could, in their own minds, adhere to the teachings of the scriptures or of their religion and so think of themselves as righteous in the eyes of God and certainly of other people. But Jesus introduces a new way, a different way. He says that surpasses, is greater than, bigger than, better than, truer than all of their ways. And in doing so, he turns their world upside down. He invites them into kingdom living, which had become uniquely accessible to them in and through him, right there, right then. Jesus continued and then, uh, he takes all of their scriptures and flips them upside down. You remember, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And then we get to chapter six of Matthew's gospel by addressing where Jesus addresses three facets of righteousness, what was known as righteousness. We might call them spiritual discipline, spiritual practices, or simply disobedience or obedience today. They were common at the time, commonly practiced by all upright Jews. They were giving to the needy, praying, and fasting maybe the three most common acts of righteousness or ways of righteousness in that culture. And Jesus goes through each one of these at the beginning of chapter six, giving, praying, fasting, with this very intentional introduction to all three, beginning at chapter six, verse one, listen closely, this is the word of God through the son of God, Jesus. He said, 
be careful not to practice your righteousness, in other words, your good works or your spiritual disciplines, in front of others to be seen by them. In other words, to show off, to try to impress others. If you do that, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. None, zero zip. And then Jesus goes on to speak specifically about giving to the needy and he says to his disciples that when they give to the needy that they shouldn't announce their giving with trumpets and it's, it's a fun picture. Jesus is really funny because no one would do that and yet people would in subtle ways get out a trumpet and blow it. Everybody look right here. Bing, 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 bing. Dun, 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 dun. And so he's got this humorous way of saying don't do this. Don't do this, you're drawn to it. You want to impress people with your giving, but instead give in secret, where only God sees, and great then will be, will be your reward. And then Jesus goes on to say, when you pray, verse five, do not be like the hypocrites, the pretenders, actors, the show-offs. Do not make your prayers and your praying into theater for common people to consume, as we human beings are so inclined to do, even in subtle ways, instead get alone with God to pray. And we talked about private prayer last week. Pray to the one who, who's seeing really counts. And he will hear you. He will reward you. And then Jesus continues with his encouragement to his disciples in this realm of private practice in verse 9. And say, he, or in verse 16. And this he says there. And whenever you fast, so it's giving to the needy, praying, and now fasting. And whenever you fast, do not look somber like the hypocrites, for they mark their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received a reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And we know by this time, after listening to Jesus teach about the privacy of giving and private prayer, we understand what Jesus is getting to and getting at with regard to our righteousness, our good works, our religious practices, we hear Jesus warning about the dangers, the risks of trying to score points in front of others, to score points in, other eyes, in others' eyes as we do the good things to which God has called us for his glory, for others' well-being, for our own spiritual maturing, how we've manipulated, how we're inclined to twist those things. We recognize in his teaching that Jesus is accu accurately dissecting our hearts. Do we not? He knows our sometimes drifting motives. He understands spiritual truth. We know that Jesus is right. He was uh, the smartest man who ever lived, and he's right again. Do you remember that Far Side cartoon? There's God on the one hand in this game show. There's a game show, and God's on one side, and then a little guy named Larry's on the other side. Uh, and God's got like 10,000 points, and there's uh, Pat Sajak or Alex Trebek or whoever the host show was, and he goes, another point for God. You don't remember that far side cartoon? <laughs> and God's up by like 10,000. He's right again. I'll bring the cartoon next week. Uh, we recognize in Jesus' teaching that he was right, always. And so uh, after listening to Jesus' teaching about private prayer, private giving, we understand what Jesus was getting at. Uh, he dissects our hearts as I was saying. He knows what's going on. He knows what truth is. We know that Jesus is right about us. We know 
that he knows us. And that can cause a person to pull away in fear when someone knows you so well, inside and out, sees right through you. That can cause someone like you or me to pull away from God in fear or in guilt. Or it can cause a person to be drawn toward Jesus and into God's kingdom knowing that God in Christ knows who we are, knows the conditions of our hearts, knows how we really are, knows how we function, and loves us. All the same, loves us still. When the religious people of Jesus' day, in other words, the good religious people, Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the religious law, when they gave to the poor, they made a big fuss about it. When they prayed, they tried hard to sound very spiritual. We talked about that two weeks ago. When they fasted, they made sure that other people knew that they were fasting and so that they were good or righteous in other people's minds. They wore old, unwashed, unironed tunics. They didn't comb their hair. They moved slowly. I'm so tired. I'm so tired. What's wrong, bro? Are you sick? What's going on? Oh, no, I'm just fasting. I'm just fasting. It's killing me. I mean, we're good at that. We play that game all the time. And not only did sort of they behave that way, but they wore their old clothes. They wrinkled their faces in some twisted way. They acted tired. They looked disheveled. And Jesus said, if that's what a person wants, in other words, to have some people think you're really religious, if that's really important to you, you can have that. You can get that. That's easy, sure. But if what you want is to enter God's kingdom and experience God's presence and allow God to transform, refresh, and renew your heart, well, then you need to turn your attention toward him and away from those you're trying to impress, other people. The kingdom is in the secret place. The kingdom of God is in the secret place. The kingdom flourishes in secrecy, which is why it's so difficult for spin doctors and show-offs to ever experience it. But Jesus doesn't leave his students without hope, nor does he denigrate or discourage the ancient practice of fasting itself. Rather, he offers them this. But when you fast, put oil on your head, which was not something we do. Greasy hair isn't a big thing anymore. But it was a thing then. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you when you fast. Take a shower. Brush your teeth. Put on some clean clothes. Comb your hair. Put lotion on your face. Maybe even a little cologne. And hey, go out on a limb and actually smile. And the one who counts, the one who has the power and the will to rescue you from the pit and from yourself and from evil, he will see what you do in secret and he will reward you. That's the way things work with giving and with praying and with fasting. And the people of Jesus' day needed to hear what Jesus had to say as giving and fasting and prayer were a regular part of their religion, their faith, their culture, their lives. But this last part, this third practice of righteousness of which Jesus spoke, fasting, is almost unknown to us today. We give. We talked about that. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We talked about it last Sunday. We will talk about it this we'll keep talking about it. We teach about it giving. We pray, we talk about it, we invite people to pray. We pray for people every week, every week in multiple different ways, venues. We always pray. We give, 
we pray, but this fasting thing is rare and unknown, almost foreign to us and forgotten. And so we should see some incongruity there in the teaching of Jesus. John Mark Comer writes, no practice of Jesus is more alien or neglected in the modern Western church than fasting, none. In the post-enlightenment intellectual landscape in which we live where human beings are viewed as res cogitans or thinking things, the idea of drawing on the spirit's power not through one's mind but through one's stomach sounds absurd. Few followers of Jesus regularly fast anymore. And yet, until recent history, fasting was one of the core practices of the way of Jesus. I'll say that again. And yet, until recent history, fasting was one of the core practices of the way of Jesus. For hundreds of years, the church would fast twice a week on Wednesdays and Fridays. That was just what you did if you were a Christian. In the fourth century, when the church developed the practice of Lent, those 40 days plus Sundays before Easter, It was originally a fast similar to Islam's Ramadan. Fact. As a lead up to Easter, followers of Jesus would wake up and go without food until sunset for 40 days every year. No food during that time. That's our ecclesiastic, that's our spiritual heritage. That's our DNA as followers of Jesus our forgotten DNA. In writing his modern classic book on spiritual practices titled Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster wrote, fasting has been in general disrepute both in and outside the church for many years. For example, in my research, I could not find one single book published on the subject of fasting from 1861 to 1954, a period of nearly 100 years. And speaking of the 1860s, in the year 1863, Abraham Lincoln, on March 30th, signed a resolution from the Senate proclaiming April 30th, exactly one month later, to be a national day of prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. But somewhere along the line over these last 160 years, that became a national day of only prayer which, in fact, might be most publicly acknowledged and celebrated currently, interestingly, over a meal (laughs) at the National Prayer Breakfast. Not to denigrate that, it's a great thing, but there's some irony there, isn't there? A little bit of irony, historically. We almost can't imagine life without our three square meals a day and a little snacking on the side between meals. Any other fellow snackers out there? (laughs) Livestream folks, that was about 75% of us. We live, I don't know if you notice it, go to Costco and I mean, it's just stacked high. We live in a food-obsessed culture that not only struggles to say no personally, but which in ways and at times may even worship food. I was in the food court yesterday at Hillsdale Mall picking up our youngest from a birthday party and was just like, wow. I hadn't been in there since kind of right after it opened, reopened. Like, it's almost like a cathedral, high ceilings, lots of lights, music, beautiful pictures, like stained glass windows. And it was all about food and all the food you could ever want or dream of rolling back across your taste buds. It was everywhere. It was amazing. Nothing wrong with that. 
We have to eat. That's how God designed us. And as we saw last week, as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, God intends that we ask him for daily substance. In other words, food to eat each day. God wants us to eat, but daily bread is one thing. Taking photos of our food and the fine cuisines that we eat sometimes for lunch and dinner and posting those on social media is, is a little bit different thing, isn't it? I mean, it's just a little different. We've got an interesting relationship with food. Everyone's got a relationship with food. We talked a week or two ago about our relationship with money. That's a real thing. So is our relationship with food. These are just some of the choices before me when I open the refrigerator. Oh, I didn't get the picture up on the screen. Oh, I forgot about that. But I open the refrigerator in the morning. Imagine on the big screen, screen over here on live stream. A refrigerator that just is loaded with colorful, wonderful, different appetizing things to eat. And then I go around the corner to the pantry and that's where all the nuts are that I snack on. And then I go out to the garage and that's where all the packaged snacks are that I snack on. We're immersed in food. The idea of fasting simply no longer crosses our mind. And frankly, we, if you're like me, don't want it to. It's as if we've excised that part of the scriptures and that part of the way of Jesus. And yet, Jesus assumes that his disciples will fast. Jesus assumes that those who are apprenticing with him will fast, that fasting will be a regular part of their lives. Jesus assumes when you fast, but when you fast. It's a regular part of the program, a part of the rule as the monastic said, a part of the pathway, a part of the way. And so while Jesus taught about fasting was pertinent to his first century audience, most of us followers of Jesus today have some catching up to do before it's pertinent to us. Otherwise, it's just three weird verses at the end of this little section that we don't have anything to do with and doesn't have anything to do with us. It was pertinent to them, but not so much to us. But it can be, and we might even say it must be once again. Now, Jesus doesn't command his disciples to fast. In fact, nowhere in the scriptures except one place on the Day of Atonement, all of the Jews everywhere, almost no exceptions, practiced fasting on that one day, in addition to lots of others and a weekly fast or two for them. But in the scriptures, it's only commanded one time. And Jesus doesn't command fasting. It's not a law but he assumes that it's part of the good rhythm of kingdom living for his disciples. And so a few things about fasting today, a short introduction to fasting for us. Throughout the scriptures, fasting refers to abstaining from food for primarily spiritual purposes. It stands in distinction to the hunger strike, the purpose of which is to gain political power or to attract attention for a good cause. It also is distinct from health dieting, which stresses abstinence from food, but for physical rather than spiritual purposes. Because of the secularization of modern society, fasting, if it's done at all, is usually motivated either by vanity or by the desire for power. That's not to say these forms of fasting are necessarily wrong, but their objective is other than the fasting described in the scriptures and to which Jesus referred. Biblical fasting always centers on spiritual purposes. 
People sometimes use the term fasting for other forms of abstinence, such as I'm fasting from social media, or the 49ers, or online shopping, or exercise, or whatever. <laughs> All of which may be good and great for that person, but none of that is fasting. That's abstinence. Fasting is the practice of voluntary denying one's own body food as a spiritual act as a psychosomatic act and as an act of the whole person with the intention of accomplishing some purpose that is consistent with God's will for one's own life, which we'll talk about in a moment. But first, a couple more things. In the scripture, the normal means of fasting involved abstaining from all food, solid or liquid, but not from water. Fasting might as well, might be as little as skipping one meal or skipping two meals, which might mean going 24 hours between meals, or skipping three meals, which might mean going 36 hours between meals, or for three days, or 72 hours, and so forth. Most healthy people can actually go for a number of days without food, without any serious medical side effects. A human body is continually in need of air and water, of course, but the human body can literally go days, and for many people, many, many days, without eating. Of course, if one has never fasted before, it's a good idea to start slowly. Learn to walk before you learn to run. And understand that feelings of hunger will arise, and that's simply normal when fasting. We uh, sometimes get to the point in fasting and go, I'm hungry, I can't bear this anymore. But that's really just our bodies and our minds saying, I've never been in this territory before. And wanting to have every need, craving, desire met and fulfilled at the moment which is our custom, which is mostly how we function. Having said that, however, women are, who are pregnant should not fast, nor should people who are diabetic or those with some other specific and serious medical conditions. If you have a question, this is my little asterisk, if you have a question about whether or not fasting is okay with you, it's fine for most people, but not for everyone, you should check with your doctor. This is the part of the sermon that feels like the end of a pharmaceutical commercial where they talk really fast. <laughs> but it needs to be said. And now sort of in moving toward closing, some reasons to fast and some benefits thereof. More than any other reason, people in the scriptures fast as a means of humbling themselves before God. Fasting and humbling oneself in the scriptures are almost synonymous. They almost always go together. When people in the scriptures were deeply distressed over their sin and guilt, they would both weep and fast. Nehemiah assembled the people with, quote, fasting and in sackcloth, and they stood and confessed their sins for nine hours, I think it was. The people of Nineveh responded in the same way to Jonah's call to repent. Daniel sought God by prayer, quote, by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes as he confessed the sins of God's people to God. Saul of Tarsus, who would later become the Apostle Paul, right after his conversion, goes three days without eating in remorse and in awe of the grace of God in his life. Fasting can reveal to a person what's going on inside of them. Richard Foster has astutely observed. More than any of the other disciplines, fasting reveals the things that control us. And this is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Fasting reveals the things that control us. 
And this is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We cover up what is inside us with food and other good things, but in fasting, these things surface. If pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately, Foster writes. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they are within us, they will surface during fasting. At first, we will rationalize that our anger is due to our own hunger. It's hunger's fault. But then we will come to know that we are angry because the spirit of anger is within us. And we can rejoice in this knowledge because we know that healing is available through the power of Jesus Christ. Fasting reminds us of our weakness, of the mercy we need, and of God's grace for us in our weakness and the availability of God's grace. Do you remember how Paul celebrates that at the end of 2 Corinthians? For God's power is made evident in my weakness. His grace and his goodness are shown by my brokenness. Fasting is often coupled with intercessory prayer in the scriptures and so also today by those who fast with some followers of Jesus testifying to greater effectiveness or greater power in their praying while fasting. And then there's worship in the second chapter of Luke's gospel where we read about the prophetess Anna in the temple coupling fasting with worship and thus enhancing her worship of God at least from her experience thereof. I don't know. I mean, it, it may happen. It may be your, the practice of some of you, but it's never been for me to fast in preparation for coming here to worship together. I get ready with a bagel and a cup of decaf. You may get ready in other ways, but rarely do I think people get ready for worship by denying themselves food that they might be made more aware or in touch both of what's happening inside and what's happening above. Highly recommend. Next, there's the battle with the flesh and the words again of John Mark Comer, fasting is a way to turn our bodies into allies. In our fight with the flesh rather than adversaries, fasting trains our bodies to not get what they want, at least not all of the time. In our culture, so run by feelings and desire, we assume that we must get what we want in order to be happy. And by want, we often mean what our flesh wants or our bodies want. But this simply isn't true. With fasting, we decide of our own accord to not give our bodies what they want. As a result, when somebody else decides to not give us what we want or circumstances in our lives decide or even God decides, we are prepared then to not freak out, he writes, to go into a rage or to go ballistic on Twitter. We have trained ourselves to be happy and at peace even when we don't get our way. This is why fasting, far from being a medieval form of self-hate, when done rightly, is a pathway to freedom. And fasting helps to train not only a person's body and their mind, but also their will. In his seminal book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, fasting helps to discipline the self-indulgent and slothful will. Me, right here. Which is so reluctant to serve the Lord. If there's no element, and this, is, uh, this middle section is uh, what really rings true for me. 
If there's no element of asceticism in our lives, if we give free rein to the desires of the flesh, taking care, of course, to keep within the limits of what seems permissible to the world, we shall find it hard to train for the service of Christ. When the flesh is satisfied, it is hard to devote oneself to a life of service, which calls for much self-renunciation. Are you with me? John Calvin himself, that stuffy reformed founder of our reformed and Presbyterian stream of Christianity. John Calvin himself said that the sum of the Christian life, get this, the sum of the Christian life is self-denial. If you want to summarize the Christian life in just a couple of words, those are them. Denial of self. And fasting can be a means of compassion toward the poor, putting us in a place of solidarity with the poor when we not only do not eat, but also give to the poor what we would have eaten, what was ours to eat, or we give to them the currency we would have spent on our own eating so that the truly hungry can eat. Hence a new kind of solidarity. And finally, there's gratitude. There are others. I ran out of room on the screen. Gratitude. When we deny ourselves food for a period of time, we're reminded not only of those who do not have, that there are others among us in the world who for whatever reasons do not have, but that for whatever other reasons God has blessed us and continues to do so and always has with daily bread. And this should make us grateful. So many years ago in youth ministry, uh, we did this thing. International Relief and Development Organization called World Vision had a program called the 30-Hour Famine that they offered to youth ministries. Anyone ever do or hear of the 30-hour famine? It rocked, it rocks. And so they would, uh, during a 30-hour lock-in, create a program where students would be together and not eat at all. From lunch, from breakfast on Friday through dinner on Saturday. And so the students would be together, they would learn, they would do exercises, they would do field trips, they would read, they would study the scriptures, they would worship, they would pray, and have some fun along the way, all about hunger in the world, and never eat. And then I remember this one year when we were doing the 30-hour famine, we got to the end of that, and all we had was just black beans and rice, barely cooked, and that was the meal, sort of the break-your-fast meal, our breakfast at dinner on Saturday. And we didn't have salsa. We didn't have paste picante sauce from San Antonio. We had nada to go with this simple, unspiced black beans and rice. And it was one of the best meals I've ever had in my life. When God reminds us all that we have and all that we've been given, gratitude is sometimes the result. So, Back to where we started as we end. Whenever you give, don't blow trumpets. Whenever you pray, don't call a lot of attention to yourself. Whenever you fast, don't wrinkle your face and look distraught and brokenhearted. But we never fast. Most of us, most of the church, never fasts, and yet Jesus considers it an essential for the spiritual life or the kingdom life or living in God's kingdom. Our world says that we find life, 
true life by self-fulfillment. Jesus says you actually find true life and abundant life and eternal life by self-denial. It's not a popular message. It's not what anyone especially wanted to hear as we move into Thanksgiving when we have a feast planned this week, many of us, and enter the season of feasting. I know full well that there's not going to be a lot of application to this sermon this week in your life or mine, though I think a lot of that would be good. And I encourage that. Jesus was crystal clear about what he thought was the path to the way of life in the kingdom. We would do well against all the pressures, voices, and availability in our world to consider practicing is actually a lost but profoundly deep exercise in which and through which God is prepared to not only meet us, but also teach us and transform us if we will simply go along. May God give us the will and the courage and the hope to do what Jesus taught, to be in his place, knowing that as he does, we will experience the kingdom for which we pray. May this be so. Let's pray together. God, we remember Jesus between his baptism and the beginning of his public ministry being led by your spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted while he fasted for 40 days. And at the pinnacle of his fasting, at we would assume would be his weakest moment, he was strongest somehow, in and by your grace, resistant to temptation, able to stand up to the evil one and to move forward victoriously. Give us that sort of experience. Draw us into this ancient practice that should have never been forgotten. And in it, Help us to see you, to know you, to meet you, to live in dependence on you, and to find you in a new way. You promise that when we seek, we will find. We ask that that be true. Help us, Lord Jesus. Amen.